Would you follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen behind me as I read today's scripture from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Friends, I love this time of year, partly because of the, the crisp weather that we've got outside. It feels amazing. Um, but I, I love the Advent season. I love the anticipation in the season of Advent. I'm grateful for the Word of God, which gives us a detailed account of Christ's first coming and also prepares us for Christ's second advent, his second coming. This morning we are nearing the end to the book of Philippians, which we started August 20th, and this has been a, a letter that is filled with joy. That's why the, the series has been entitled Rejoice in the Lord. And we have reason to rejoice in the Lord all year long, but in this Advent season, as we look ahead and, and we remember his first coming, his humble beginning, born to the virgin, born in a manger, we're reminded that Christ gave up everything to have us, to save us, to, to draw near to us and for us to draw near to him. And we should be very grateful for that. That's the greatest gift that God could have ever given was his only son. We're nearing the end to this letter, this joyful letter. And I, I want to remind ourselves of the context and the situation that is at hand with the Apostle Paul and the Philippians. Because it's going to stir our joy as we continue on through Advent leading up to Christmas Day. The Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter while he was confined under house arrest in Rome for being a faithful ambassador of Christ, for preaching the gospel. He was presently, as he was writing this letter, being guarded by the most elite Roman soldiers in Rome. There were those who served in Caesar's household. Paul had no freedom whatsoever, but he had joy. He was literally chained to one of the Roman guards at all times, but he had joy. Paul was even forced to pay his own rent. We, we know this because Luke records it in Acts 28, verse 30. He says, he, Paul, lived there for two whole years at his own expense. Paul is imprisoned. Paul is living in the unknown which is a really hard place to live. At times, we'd almost rather know that something bad is, hap is going to happen than to not know anything at all and just be waiting. What, what, how's this going to turn out? And, and there he is. He's, he's chained in prison, 
and he doesn't know. He's awaiting trial before Caesar, and he doesn't know. Are they going to kill him? Are they going to give him the death penalty? Or are they going to set him free? Is he going to get to see the Philippians face to face, or is he not? He does not know. And to make matters worse, he's, he's not just suffering, uh, suffering the persecution from the world for being a follower of Jesus. He is suffering persecution from even believers in the church. They've got local pastors in Rome who are slandering Paul to their congregations and to others. And we know that from Philippians 1, 15 through 17. They're envious of Paul's giftedness. They're envious of Paul's reputation as an apostle of Christ. And it just keeps getting worse. Epaphroditus, whom the Philippians sent to care for Paul as he is in prison and to bring a gift, a financial gift, to support him. Epaphroditus got sick along the way. He almost died. Fortunately, he made it, and he was able to deliver the gift. But, I mean, it is as though if anything could go wrong, it's going to go wrong. And I'm confident that you have experienced a season or more like that in your life where you're going, if anything can go wrong, I can guarantee, I can bet that it will go wrong. And that's surely how Paul must have been feeling at times. But Paul had perspective in the midst of these just ongoing disasters or crises. And he had perspective in the sovereignty of God. He had perspective that God was still working and moving powerfully in the midst of all the adversity. He writes in Philippians 1, verse 12 and 14, he says, Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, which isn't great, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is not in vain. But he says, is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So here you've got a man who's experiencing lots of adversity, and yet he has not lost any joy in Christ. He is not living in anxiety he is not discontent. He is very content in Christ. And so you've got to ask, I mean, how are you not crushed by these circumstances? Paul, how are you continually being content in the midst of all these disasters? And Paul has a secret to his contentment. And he shares that secret of being content in any circumstance in this passage that we're looking at. That's why I've entitled the sermon this morning, The Secret to Being Content. Look with me again, Philippians 4, 10 through 13. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things 
through him who strengthens me. First thing I want you to see this morning is that the Lord provides for us to be content. The Lord provides for us to be content. Look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. You need to look carefully. Who's Paul rejoicing in? The Lord. He's not rejoicing in the people who brought the gift. He's not rejoicing in the people who sent the person who brought the gift. He's not rejoicing in Epaphroditus. He's not rejoicing in the Philippians. He's not rejoicing in those people. He is rejoicing in the Lord. He's not even rejoicing in the gift itself. He's rejoicing in the Lord greatly because Paul knew that it was through the all-knowing, all-wise, all-good, all-sovereign, all-powerful Lord Jesus Christ that this gift had arrived. Perfect timing, totally sufficient. The Philippians were being used as God's hands and feet to Paul so that the gospel would continue to advance. And we praise God for that, but I don't want you to miss the perspective that Paul has right here. He's not rejoicing in the gift. He's rejoicing in the gift giver. He's not rejoicing in the means by which the gift was delivered. He's rejoicing in the gift giver. He's rejoicing in God. And while Paul is obviously appreciative of the Philippians and he expresses gratitude in this letter for them and for their partnership, he expresses adoration and praise to God. We likewise should view every gift, every provision as being from God because, friends, everything that you have is from God. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. John 3.27 says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given him from heaven. 1 Corinthians 4.7, What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And I love, I love that verse in particular because it's indicating that there are even times where we're tempted to believe, well, I earned that. Like, that wasn't received. I, I worked for that. And yet you worked for that with the energy that God supplied and with the job that God gave you. And so all things are a gift from God. Every single thing, every provision. And we should rejoice, rejoice in the Lord for that. I want you to look back at verse 10, though, because Paul says, after rejoicing in the Lord greatly, he says, that now at length you, Philippians, have revived your concern for me. And he says, you indeed were concerned for me, but had no opportunity. And so let's backtrack a little bit. Ten years prior to Paul writing this letter, we see in Acts 16 that Paul had preached the gospel in Philippi. He had won souls to Christ. He had planted this church. He allowed Timothy to stay and pastor for a time. And then Paul went to Athens. He left. And then he went to Corinth. And then he continued doing apostolic, missionary-type ministry. And what's interesting is that the Philippians did not cut ties with Paul when he left to continue advancing the gospel. The Philippians actually 
partnered with Paul. They were, Paul became the Philippian church's first gospel partner. They, they were supporting his work financially. And we see that in Philippians 4, 15 through 16. Look down just a little bit. Verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So the Philippians were faithful in giving and supporting towards Paul's apostolic ministry. They were grateful for Paul as much as Paul was grateful for them. They loved each other. But what's interesting here in the text that we're looking at is that sometime within that 10-year span of the church being planted in Philippi to Paul writing this letter, there was a lack of of financial support from the Philippians towards Paul. We don't know exactly when, but the good news is the Philippians have revived their concern for Paul through this financial gift, which was delivered by God's sovereign hand through Epaphroditus, who was sent by the Philippians. This word revived It makes us think of something that was once dead and then brought back to life. But what's interesting is that this word was used in Paul's time as a horticultural term. It would describe a flower that after it had blossomed and it went dormant during winter, it was revived. There was new green growth in springtime. It's back. Paul says, you were indeed concerned for me. But you had no opportunity. So Paul's not dogging on the Philippians here going, hey, what happened? (laughs) You You were supplying for my needs and then all of a sudden there's nothing. What's going on? He's saying, you wanted to, you just couldn't. And what's interesting is we don't know why. We're just left to speculate as to why the Philippians were not able to support Paul financially in his ministry. It could have been that they didn't have the financial resources for a season to do that. Could be, I don't know. Could be that they didn't have a way to send the money to him. They didn't have Zelle. They didn't have Venmo. It could have been that there were some political hindrances that prevented the Philippians from supporting a Christian prisoner in Rome. We just don't know. So instead of speculating, let's just lean into what we do know. And what we know, friends, is this. That the Philippians wanted to support him, but they weren't able to in a season. And yet God, in his sovereign and good wisdom, knew that they would supply this gift at the right time in his greatest need. Praise God for that. Maybe you've experienced something like that before, where it is the last possible minute where if this doesn't come through, if this doesn't come in, we don't know what we're going to do. A bill might not get paid. And yet God supplies exactly what you need in that last hour. I praise God for moments like those in your life and mine so that we can continue to be reminded that he knows all, that he is good, that he is aware, and he loves to provide for his children. We just need to trust him. What we need to lean into here is modeling our lives, our lives off, the, off of Paul's life His perspective and his attitude is an example to you and I. He is rejoicing in the Lord always. He is rejoicing in the Lord's provision. 
We need to be quicker to see every provision as primarily, first and foremost, from the Lord as a gracious gift. And while Paul wanted the Philippians to know that he was grateful for the gift, he needed them to know that before the gift arrived, he was content in that prison cell. The Lord had taught him to be content in any situation, in any circumstance. And that's my second point. The Lord teaches us to be content. This is a lesson we learn from the Lord. Look at verse 11 and 12. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger Abundance and need. We'll stop right there. He's learned to be content. He learned it. That word learned, it's in the past active tense, which means this is something that he learned in the past, and yet he's also learning in the present. He's actively, continually learning this. God is showing this to him. He's teaching him to be content in any circumstance. And what Paul has learned is something you and I must learn. This is the season, the Advent season. December is the season when we are tempted to be discontent maybe more than any other month of the year. We need to learn to be content in any season of life. Paul didn't learn this from his parents. Paul didn't learn this from reading a book. Paul didn't learn this secret from a TED Talk. Paul didn't learn this while he was in seminary, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul didn't learn this as a Pharisee among Pharisees. Paul did not learn this merely through experience, through trial and error. Paul learned this through discipleship with Jesus Christ. Jesus taught him to be content in any situation. Jesus taught him through his presence and his nearness to be content no matter what life throwed at Paul. I, I use the word discipleship very intentionally. The word here for learn is emathon. The word for disciple is mathetes. Y'all hear that? A mathon, mathetes. It's from the same root word. And the word disciple literally means a learner. Christ had discipled Paul into contentment. He, was, he had taught him contentment and he is teaching him contentment. And as we abide in Christ and we as disciples of Christ walk with him in prayer and in his word, he will teach us contentment in every and any situation that you are faced with in life, whether it is abundance or need. The word content what does it mean? It was used at that time when Paul was living and writing this letter. It was used of a country that had everything that it needed. It was used of a country that needed no imports. Nothing needed to be imported into the country. It had all the natural resources necessary. Everything that it needed, it was essentially self-sufficient. 
So how does that relate to our discipleship and being content? It does not mean that that we live independently from God or we live self-sufficient lives. What it means is that we live dependent on God at all times, whether you have much or you have little. It means that we are so grateful that what Christ has done in his life and his death and his resurrection has brought us near to God, that we have friendship with God now, not enmity with God, that we have God and having God as our Father and our friend is sufficient. That We can be content in having Christ no matter what we have or don't have in this world. Being content is when Christ is enough for you and you have a peaceful acceptance of right where he has you and right with what he has given to you, what he's provided. He is enough, therefore that is enough. One theologian put it this way, he says when Paul speaks of being content, he speaks of a calm acceptance of his present lot in life. I love that. I want to grow in contentment like that. My question for you this morning is, has Christ taught you this? I'm confident that he has at times. And I'm confident that he is teaching you this as well as you cling to him. We cannot be taught this lesson apart from clinging to Christ, though. An abiding relationship with Christ is the only way that we're going to arrive at true contentment. So do you know him? Are you being discipled by him? There's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of podcasts. You can listen to and read a lot of people, but are you listening to him, his voice? Are you you seeking his face? Are you sitting at his feet? Are you being discipled by Jesus Christ regularly, tasting and seeing that he is good, that nothing else compares to a meal of Christ, he is good. Are you satisfied with him? And if the Lord Jesus Christ were to strip everything away from you this afternoon, but he continued to give him your, himself to you, would that be enough? Would you be content? Could you be content? Let me ask you another question that's totally the opposite. It's this. If the Lord Jesus Christ gave you the whole world today, everything, I I mean every island, everything in the world, but it meant that you could no longer commune with him, you could no longer have a relationship with him, number one, would you take the offer? Just be honest with yourself. You don't have to say this out loud. Would you take it? Number two, would your life look any different? Meaning, if he offered you the whole world today, but you couldn't have a relationship with him, whether you said yes or no to that offer, would your life look any different? Have you been walking with Jesus? And would, though that offer is great, and that is an incredible gift, the whole world, having Him 
you're unwilling to walk away from because you have him right now? Are we content in Jesus Christ? That is the question. In verse 12, Paul specifies the full scope of circumstances in which the Lord has taught him to be content. And it's a wide scope. I mean, this is a large spectrum of situations. Look at verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low. He knows it because he's been taught it. I know how to be brought low. What does he mean? He means, I know how to have joy, real joy. I know how to be content, true contentment with humble means, with next to nothing, as Baloo from the Jungle Book says, with the bare necessities, and at times even less than that. He says, I I know how to deal with that. I know know how to be content in that situation. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 through 8 says this, godliness with contentment is a great gain. And then it gives some reasoning. It says, for or because we brought nothing into the world. Absolutely nothing. And we cannot take anything out of the world. And if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. It is often in the seasons when we have very little that we're most aware of the God who has us. And I love what Charles Spurgeon says in line with that. He says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Only when we are thrown against the rock of ages, only when we take refuge in the rock of ages, do we see that he is totally sufficient and strong. Paul also says, I know how to abound. So I know how to be brought low and stay content in Christ. I know how to abound and be content in Christ. That word is prosperity. He says, I know how to be filled with abundance and be content. It's the idea of having more than what you need, more than just food and clothing. And I think at a first reading, this this sounds a little odd, right? Like, Yeah, I'm sure you do know how to be content with an abundance, Paul. Yeah, that makes sense to me. But the reality is it's quite difficult to have an abundance and be truly content in Christ. Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9 says this. This is the the writer says, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. And then he explains why. He says, don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. He says, why? Lest I be full in the abundance and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Meaning, lest I have all my needs met and more and I go, I don't really need God. I'm just fine. Or lest I be poor, on the other hand, and I steal, and I profane the name of my God. He says, give me neither of these things. Paul says, I've learned how to be content in both of these things. I've learned how to walk righteously in both of these things. I've learned how to glorify God in both seasons of life when I have nothing and when I have almost everything. Contentment with abundance is when you 
have abundance, but you are mindful of God. You've not forgotten God who supplied every one of those gifts. Contentment with abundance is when you own things, but those things don't own you or distract you from the God who purchased you by his blood at the cross. Contentment with abundance is when you understand that everything you have is God's and it's been given to you on loan for stewardship, temporarily wise and generous stewardship. Paul says, in any circumstance, in every circumstance, look at the text, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. If Paul knows how to be content in Christ, in these two polar extremes, what does that tell us? He knows how to be content in Christ with everything in between. He's saying, I can be content in Christ at all times, no matter what's going on in life. No matter where I am, no matter what I have or what I lack. Dr. Steve Lawson says this, he says, Paul here is putting his arms around the entirety of human experience. And friend, look at me, what he is saying is that he has not spoken of a category here that someone in this room is not in right now. He is saying that every single one of us came together to worship God this morning and we find ourselves in one of these circumstances, in one of these conditions, in one of these situations, and we can have contentment, true contentment in Christ, whether you are in need or whether you are in abundance. Praise God. That's good news. That is very, very good news. Proverbs 22, 2. So beautiful. It says the rich and the poor meet together and the Lord is maker of them all. This lifetime is like a vapor. We have things. We don't have things. But what we have if we repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ is the hope of eternal life. What we have, whether we have nothing, materially speaking, or everything in this world, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The presence of God in us and with us through everything until we reach the shores of glory. Praise God. Can you be content with God this season and next? Through Christ, you can. And I love that Paul doesn't merely speak of seeking contentment in Christ when he lacked things. He speaks of seeking contentment in Christ when he had things. He's content in Christ. He's satisfied. The Lord is his shepherd and he does not want how? That is the question this morning. That is the big question. How? How can I have that? It is by an ongoing, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. He came for you to have that relationship with him. He came and lived and died and rose again so that you could speak to God as your father. You could pray to him, and he'd hear you, every word. 
He came so that you could open your Bibles and have him speak to you and sing to you songs of redemption, songs of mercy, songs of forgiveness, songs of faithfulness, songs of I'm sovereign over your life. He came so that you could walk with him and talk with him. He came so that you could enjoy him now and forevermore. And by being continually abiding in Christ, we are being continually strengthened by his grace. And that's my third and final point. The Lord strengthens us to be content. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, we see this verse all over the place. Professional athletes put this on their eye black. Influencers put this on their TikTok and their Facebook and every other social media platform. People tattoo this in ink into their skin. And it's a wonderful verse, but it's, the problem is it's most, most commonly, it seems, misapplied, uh, and that's because it's misinterpreted. And that's because it's, it's taken out of context. Well, what's beautiful is we just, we just walked through the context of where does this fit in to the Bible, this one verse. And before I continue to explain what this means and how it applies to you and I, I do want to share the common misinterpretations and misapplications so that we don't run off and do this, okay? So Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, sometimes is misinterpreted. It does not mean this. It does not mean you can do supernatural feats. You can defy the laws of nature which God has established and is providentially keeping in place. It does not mean that. Let me put some skin on this. It does not mean you can jump across the Indian Ocean. And for some of us, it does not mean that you can dunk a basketball. I'm sorry. It does not mean you can flap your arms and fly to Mars. It does not mean that you can perform a miracle whenever you so choose. It just does not mean that. That's out of context. In context, it means that one can do all things, meaning they can have joy and peace and be truly content in all things, in all situations, whether bad or good or something in between. They can navigate through it with great contentment. Secondly, it does not mean that you can accomplish whatever you set your mind to. That's a really sweet sentiment, but it's not actually true. My dad reminds me uh, every year of how he wanted to be a doctor like his dad and like his dad, it was in the genes up until my dad, and I didn't get them either. Math and science are very difficult for my, my dad and I. And so he was trying to get through med school, and he was desperate. I mean, he was working harder than anybody in his undergraduate program to, to work through it, but he, he couldn't. He just couldn't. His, he didn't have the aptitude for it. God had, didn't, he had different plans for my dad than my dad had for himself. And so this does not mean that you can just accomplish whatever you set your mind to if you just really believe it. You might not be able to get through law school and pass the bar exam. I'm just being honest with you. You might not be able to successfully start up your own business and be your own boss. Just being honest. Maybe. Maybe not. 
But what this means is so much greater than, oh, I'll pass the bar or I'm going to start a thriving business. What this means is that no matter what goals you set out and whether you succeed in them or whether you fail in those goals that you set out to achieve, that you can be content in Christ whether there's success or failure. Praise God. Thirdly, this does not mean that God is giving us permission to sin. He does not say, you may do all things through Christ who strengthens you. He's not saying, hey, you can go out of bounds here. You can can transgress God's law through Christ who strengthens you. A common phrase that I hear uh, and I've heard a lot is, sinner saved by grace. And you know why people say that sometimes? Not every time, but sometimes. They'll say, ah, you know, I messed up there, but, you know, sinner saved by grace. It doesn't really matter. I I can do this or that. I can sin and... You know, Jesus died for me, so, you know, God's a pushover, and it's no big deal. That's a common excuse. You know, sinner, sinner saved by grace. That's not what this means. It does not say, you may do whatever you want now that the gospel has been told to you and you've believed it. It says you can do all things, and what that means is it's inferring the ability, not the permission, the ability to listen to this, carry out God's will, meaning to walk by faith in obedience to God's will in any situation, any circumstance, with joy and peace and contentment. Praise God. That's what you can do through Christ who strengthens you. Obey God, not disobey him. Fourthly, this does not mean that you can totally neglect the means of grace. Time in God's word and in prayer, in fellowship with other believers, and have power to do all things with contentment. Lean into this with me. Lean in. Okay? This is very important that we understand this. If you and I just sit back passively in our spiritual recliner and do not engage in Christ, we, that we are not being discipled by the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what you and I can expect. To not have the strength in moments to be content when you need contentment and peace and joy because things are difficult. If we don't walk with Jesus, in summary, you should expect to be discontent in your life. If we don't walk with Jesus, we can expect to not have an abiding joy. If we don't walk with Jesus personally, intimately, we can expect to be anxious more than we have peace. We have to actively lean, again, on the rock of ages to know his strength. To experience his strength, which gives us fullness of joy and peace and contentment in all circumstances in life. So rightly understood, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's more beautiful than any of the misinterpretations. It means this. It means that I can walk through anything and everything, all things, with contentment by Christ's strength, not mine. This is not a pick yourself up by your bootstraps Christianity. This is a cling to the cross Christianity. The secret to being content is an abiding relationship with Christ. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You will have the strength to do no good thing. You will have the strength, you will not have the strength to be content. But in him, you absolutely can and will experience true contentment. There was a time in Paul's life where he pled with Jesus to remove what he called a thorn in his flesh. You're familiar with this text. It was something that's unknown to us. People have thrown out ideas of what it might have been, but we don't know. But it was aggravating to Paul. He was just begging with God, will you just alleviate this? Pull out the thorn. And Jesus responded and said this, and I want you to see the link between contentment and strength, the power of God, and true contentment here. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul responds, therefore I'll boast all more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, the secret to being content is in Christ Jesus our Lord being strengthened by his grace which is sufficient for you and I. So I pray that contentment in Christ would mark your lives to the watching world this Christmas season and going into 2024. This person, they just, they're so content. They're so, they're so at peace. They have joy. And it's not in their things. They have contentment. And they have nothing. And I pray that that would open up doors for you and I to express where that comes from. It's from Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to stay close to you. We pray that you would lead us into more prayer. Lead us into a quiet place where we can be in your word and meet with you. A time of communion with God. A time where distractions are eliminated. The length of time doesn't matter as much as the frequency of time and the person that we engage with. We want to engage with you. We want to know you intimately. And through that, we want to be transformed from people who are so prone to be discontent. It's just true. It's just in our flesh. It's default. We want to be people who are content in Christ. So help us remember that you are our provider. Help us to remember that you are still teaching and discipling us. Help strengthen us to weather any storm in life with contentment. Amen.